This is Luke Gygax. Having trouble with the antithesis of wheel? Don't worry, you've come to the right place. You're listening to Save or Die. get a grant to get to Gary Con, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's ne- that's my next plan. Welcome to Save or Die, episode 110. <laughs> Somebody found a toy. <laughs> Is that a tin can or um... uh, it's something Liz found in the in the attic. It was one of those little toys you can buy at the at like the store, uh, it's a like a cheap plastic microphone that has some sort of little reverberating echo thing chain. inside of it. Did you have a Happy Meal for lunch, Mike? <laughs> if only. Anyway, this is DM Mike. Once again, I is joined by <laughs> Saver Die's official Leonard Skinner Van DM Jim. <laughs> Here's your free bird. <laughs> <laughs> And the slayer of monsters that dwell in attics, DM Liz. Hi. <laughs> and a special author guest who really should know better by now, but here he is, John Peterson. It's always a pleasure to come back. Thanks for having me. You're, I think you're the number one fan fave when it comes to guests on the show. So, Oh, you get some actual people who like designed these games back in the day on. Come on. Seriously. At least if I'm to judge by the email, people love having, hearing from you. I, I, I can't ever pin you down for a conversation at Gary Con in North Texas, so having you on the podcast is the only way I get to finally talk to you. <laughs> right. uh, we got a chance to talk actually at North Texas, didn't we, Jim? Just for a few minutes at least. Well, not an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> That's his baseline, I guess, for a conversation. It has to be an hour right. and a half. Okay, well, we're talking about uh, Arduin Grimoire and its various connotations this episode. But first... What did we do at David this week? Who cares? Ow! What have we been doing in gaming this week? Over to you, Jim. Nice pause for the bumper, sir. Well done. (laughs) Oh, my God. This has just been the crazy greatest awesome week, but I'll try and keep it to what happened in gaming. Um, Free RPG day. I had the pleasure of watching a module I co-wrote being played across the country and in Israel and Brazil online. That was very gratifying. Sweet. Got to uh, see a cut of the starter rules uh, for uh, my game that are going to be released at Gen Con. Mutant Crawl Classics, and got to try 5e for the first time on Free RPG Day. 
So I, I can now go back to saying I have played every edition of Dungeons & Dragons ever. What's your opinion? Um, not bad. I kind of see why it's settling out to be everybody in the OSR's like second favorite edition of the rules. Not to start an edition for it or anything like that. I mean, it was still a little, uh, a lot of mathing for me personally to my personal taste. But uh, we played this uh, dungeon uh, Chris Doyle wrote called Into the Dragon's Maw and went up 12th level, went up against a adult green dragon who was pretty foxy because I got my wizard got off a hell of a hold monster on a programmed illusion of the adult green dragon that he had cast from behind an illusionary wall in the lair. That'll wreck your day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's 5e. It's super balanced. The, the wizard can't fix every problem with a spell anymore, but we had a lot of fun. Okay. Well, and at 12th level, too, you're probably playing at... Uh quote-unquote, the sweet spot as far as the game itself is probably concerned. I, you know, DCC has just wrecked me forever, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I, I can see where it's a very flexible system. So your DM and your group could run it, you know, very pathfindery if you wanted to with all the mass, or run it very old school if you decided to do that with the same rule set. I think that's probably its strong suit. Yeah. The optionalism of the various things, which I suspect we'll be talking about Arduin as well in that regard. <laughs> but we shall see. <laughs> Liz, you want to cover uh, our what? massive gaming for the past two weeks? Um, well, <laughs> this past week, we had an awesome game session up in the attic where we played um, boxes and books. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, basically, we just took down a lot of boxes and went through them and threw stuff away. Um, <laughs> yeah, our gaming group last week did not meet because we had to bail out because our our 8 million-year-old cat died finally, and we just didn't feel up to gaming. So they, I think they met, or maybe they didn't meet, but I mean... We, well, we weren't there. Yeah, we way. weren't there either way, so... And then this week, our GM told us that we couldn't meet because he and his wife were having to go out of town, and so they weren't going to be able to do the game session. And we're going to cancel next week because we're going visiting family. So, so it's been, been a hard... it's been a rough month for gaming. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, but yeah, other than that, and I've been writing victorious stuff as usual, trying to fill the. Uh, the stretch goals. But other than that, that's really been it. Save us, John. No, I mean, well, welcome to my world. Right? I, mean, what <laughs> I, I um, you know, I, I am doing a ton of things like this, I guess, these days, which, which is good. Um, I've been doing a podcast with this guy uh, named Epic Name Bro, who um, actually he, he writes about mostly, he records mostly about, about computer games. Um, he's big on these games like Dark Souls, these very uh, difficult kind of tactical um, combat RPGs. And, um, but he just coincidentally lighted on some things that I'd written about the origins of critical hits and decided that he absolutely needed me to come on his podcast. And he has a pretty substantial uh, uh, following, actually, and, and talk to these kids who really don't know much about old school gaming about where all this really came from and so that's been a, a lot of fun to do actually uh, I think the third part of this just came out on Friday and the fourth part will be out next week um, That and so that, that, that's a lot of fun just to be able to kind of take 
things people know, again, things like critical hits or where hit points came from, where experience came from, and to be able to connect that back to this. And you, you see the comments, some kids get interested, they want to play now, they want to read up on this stuff, and that, that indeed makes it all worth it. Oh, what's the um, name of the podcast? It's called um, Poison Arrow. Poison Arrow, though this, his YouTube channel, Epic Name Bro, is really what to look for, and you'll see kind of his game walkthroughs, and then these podcasts are kind of interspersed into it. We'll put that okay. in the show notes so our listeners can get all the John Petersons. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's fun, and I'm, I'm doing a thing on this Wednesday in Los Angeles where uh, I'm going to be interviewed on camera pretty, pretty much all day for what may be another kind of potential series about a web series, a video series this time about the history of gaming. So, I mean, it, my calendar is just full of stuff like this. And uh, wow. I'm, uh, you are I'm, a talking head. <laughs> well, and I'm also still writing. I'm, I actually just met with uh, this guy, uh, Jonathan Walton, this week, who's local here in San Diego, uh, who's, who does a lot of indie game design. He and I are both working on a, a Routledge anthology that uh, we're under deadline for to produce, again, typical history war games, RPG sort of stuff. And so getting more of that out in academia, um, just trying to, trying to get the true religion in front of people. Cool. Right on. Another book I can read. So her, when, when are you expecting it to be out? Ballpark. Oh, I have no idea. And that I would okay. guess 2017 probably. Ah, um, so I've got I've got some time to buy it. So. You do, yeah. I wouldn't think <laughs> too much about that. I'll, I'll save money. So. <laughs> okay. Well, that seems to cover anything else up, or shall we check for emails? Get down, get down, get down, get down. The, the save, save or die. die. Email hot tub time machine. Come here, scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh man! The following emails have been edited for length and content. Well, we actually do have a couple of emails. So if you want, I can start reading those right now. Yeah, sure. Eh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Our first email is from Kevin Searle. Kevin. Kevin! Kevin! And Kevin writes, I've been offering the strategic review version of The Alchemist in my Swords and Wizardry game. So far, the few players that have taken it up haven't survived an initial foray into a dungeon. Kevin. <laughs> huh. Well, Kevin, have we got the episode for you? Because now you can run the Arduin Alchemist class for those guys. And I bet they get through the dungeon. Oh, God. Was was the Alchemist actually in the strategic review? I I think uh, so. I thought it was in the Dragon. I thought it was in Dragon number two. Maybe like two. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's a really early one. I I have this clear mental picture of the art. You're exactly right. Okay. But yeah, I remember reading that up, and I've given it as an option in my classic games, but nobody's ever really taken it. But I always thought, well, it might be a li- bit overpowered. But oh, <laughs> Until you get a, a hit to the torso and have to go to the miscability tables to find out what happened to your character. Mm. Another Ardrin reference? Well, yeah. wasn't that the wasn't that the version of the alchemist we were talking about? And I had mentioned that it did not seem to be as cumbersome a class as other alchemist classes for, like, say, second edition, et cetera, oh, yeah, seemed to be. The complete alchemist book. Yeah. From- yeah. 
Bard Games, I think it was. Yeah, no, it was it was much lighter weight as far as crunch. But of course, without any context, we don't know. I mean, you know, they all get killed, but then they're in, <laughs> they insist on being in the front of the party. Well, you know, <laughs> that's going to happen then. But thanks for the info. Certainly something to think about, Kevin. Yeah, I guess if anyone else has any has any stories about playing their strategic review alchemists, you know, how did they turn out in your games? You know, were you starting out at first level or were you playing mid-level characters? And, and which issue of the strategic review do you have? Because I don't have that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, our second email is from David Lynch. <laughs> Mr. Basic Alchemist himself. Yes. He says, greetings, ladies and gents. I've been thinking about rules versus rulings and wanted your thoughts. In many games, one GM might run things strictly by the book, while another creates rulings on the fly, not wanting to stop at the table to reference something mid-game. Do you have any rules that you never run other than by the book? Or do you have rulings you have made at the table that forever replace the way they were originally written? As a follow-up, do you keep track of rules when a table ruling outshines the book version? Do you keep an archive of house rules? If you do have an archive of any sort, how do you keep it? Sticky notes in your rule book? A document kept as a bookmark? Or do you keep a notebook of alternate rules? Tattoos. <laughs> as an aside, thanks for the review of my basic alchemist in 106. My wife was laughing at how giddy I became listening to it, but she was also relieved I had overcome my McFly syndrome. I never let anyone read my stories. What if they didn't like them? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for a great show, all of them. David Lynch. No, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, you want to give us your point of view on those? I mean, there's a whole, whole mess of questions in there. I mean, I... Certainly, I can think of rules that um, you know ended up being house rules. Some some of which I'm sure came from this system or that. Like um, how how much have I played by like rolling quarter wisdom as kind of an, an alertness check, right? Mm -hmm. um, that do I is it written down? Where did it come from? Like I don't, I don't even know. But <laughs> you know, groups I played with so attuned me to this. Well, quarter wisdom is what you roll to kind of notice something you might not otherwise notice, and um, it carries over into whatever version of D and D that I have, where there's a wisdom stat and a twenty sided die. So, um, you know. so sort of like the idea of double damage for a nat twenty. It was never written down in the day. It just kind of emerged. Yeah, I mean, that was actually from Empire of the Petal Throne specifically. Oh, was it? Uh, okay, that was yeah. I haven't read that uh, so. No, it's interesting because because that that was one of the first places you really get that kind of natural twenty system like that. Aside from like vorpal blades and you know a, a couple of special purpose items, but that was a blanket rule even in like the summer seventy four drafts of Empire of the Petal Throne. Okay, so it was literally right out there at the beginning. Huh. Cool. Okay, um, Jim. I'm the world's worst um, hand waver and hot dogger. I will hot dog anything if it just speeds the play up and moves the story along. So I make every effort. My sticky notes are all in my frontal lobes, and I make every you know good conscious effort to keep things consistent. But uh, I mean, it's too many things to even think of. And since we've all been learning Dungeon Crawl Classics, there's some there are some house conventions we mislearned as we began to play that we've just decided our house rules now and and we do them instead of the way like initiative order or something. How very old school. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, Liz? Oh, gosh. Um, a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I tried keeping an archive of stuff a long time ago. I haven't done it in years. And um, the only problem I would have with that is if it was something that didn't come into play very often, you know, I would forget what we had done before. And if you don't want to stop to look something up in the book, by the same token, you don't want to stop and look something up in your notebook to see if you house ruled it before either. So it's kind of like Jim, I guess. I try to stay consistent, you know, with a ruling. But, you know, if it's something that doesn't, you know, that we don't do that often, you know, I may not remember what we did the last time. Just, well, I think we did this. Let's just do that again and see. Um, it, it's not the best system in the world. <laughs> and I don't even know where my notes would be at this point. They're probably in a box we haven't taken down from the attic yet. Okay. Well, in my campaigns, um, I usually keep a separate house rules document, but I'm leery to print it out in fine notebook style or anything like that because they change a lot. Um, for instance, people who are interested can go to Dragon's Foot and download my Guide to the Realms of Aden, DF11, and the back 20 pages are house rules. And I would say maybe I, I still use a quarter of them. Um, a lot of them I don't use anymore just because, well, I tried it for a while and then I decided, nah, this isn't really working or my players hated it or something. But yeah, if we come up with a rationale during a game or a rule that changes from the by the book, then yeah, you, you owe it to your players to write it down and then have it publicly available. So it's not – they don't feel like, well, the rules apply one way for my NPCs but another way for the player characters. Oh, so you made me actually think. In a sense, Mutant Crawl Classics RPG is my house rules for DCC RPG. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Victorious started more or less as that. Um, I just expanded it more and more. Something T. Foster said once on Dragon's Foot that I think is really appropriate here, and I'm paraphrasing, but it works out basically to you need, as a DM, you need to read the uh, effects of, say, grenade-like weapons out of the DMG, not so that you can apply it uniformly, but that you'll know what the intent was behind it. So when you do make up a, a rule on the fly to govern it, you've got an idea of the the baseline expectations Gygax, say, had when he put it together. The old learn to do it right before you invent your own way of doing it. Right. Yeah, learn, learn what the intent was behind it. Because, you know, there are some rules that may have had a good intent, but in execution are pretty hokey. <coughs> Sonics. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, was that my other boy? I, think, I, it was. I think it was. Liz, did you handpick these emails to for Ardor Grimmar? Because well, yeah, it's perfect because it, it's exactly about house rules that got you know so prescriptive that they ended up becoming a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically, I picked the emails for you know I wanted to make sure that it was something that all four of us would be able to talk about. 
as opposed to just, you know, I just listened to episode 107 and it was really great, you know, which we love those emails too. But, you know, I was specifically looking for things that, you know, all four of us would be able to weigh in on and talk about. And it just happened to turn out that it works very well with the Arduin Dear, dear save or die, please make John Peterson a permanent host. Get rid of that Jim. Get rid of that Jim guy. He's obnoxious. Oh, in his copious amounts of free time. <laughs> uh, I think we've we've had the occasional email or person come up to us and you know kind of hint strongly that they would like to see John on more episodes. <laughs> Like I said, you know, I would hate to disappoint the public. You know, if, if, if Jim, if you want to step down, and um, now I'm just totally, please, please, Jim, stay. We need you now more before, than ever. Before you finish that, uh, John, he also edits and organizes the episodes. So, right. if you took his place, you would have to do that too. So, yeah, that sounds Full like a disclosure. Lot of work. Yeah, right. not fun. But where would someone send an email? To ask us questions, Jim. Save or die podcast at gmail.com. Or our voice line at 940-536-3763. And Kojo, we are going to get to your voicemail, honest, next episode. <laughs> but we're first going to take a break for these important public announcements. And so Topus stops cursing me by giving me nasty fingernails. But not on my hands. What? <laughs> well, we got you now. Yeah, yeah, but you, yeah, that's what I mean. But you, you lost me somewhere around fingernails. <laughs> Lord. And my work is done. Thopus <laughs> the Gnome here. The Save or Die podcast is brought to you in part by a more than generous grant from me. <clears throat> Don't you mean a generous grant by Lesser Gnome Games? Same thing. I pretty much run the joint. And this one too now, come to think of it. Here. Go finish the commercial for me, Knave. You got it. Lesser Gnome Games and Miniatures. Available at RPGnow.com, LesserGnome.com, or at a friendly local game store near you. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as $1.50 a month. That's right, $1.50 a month goes a long way. Thank you. this thing i'm gonna have to take that away from you <laughs> no <laughs> it's mine i trust <laughs> all right arduin grimoire or the complete arduin as liz and i read or the what is what was it the emperor's choice one called jim uh there are several versions but the uh the arduin trilogy is their reprint of it 
okay, the Ar- Arduin trilogy. Or as we called them back in the day, the other little brown books. <laughs> mm. Well, Jim, or actually I'll let John start us off on what was this? What was David Hargrove doing? Yeah, it's a kind of interesting question, I guess. So um, there had been, at the time Dave put this out, uh, I, he wasn't the first to kind of provide an unofficial supplement for sale that was intended to bolster kind of the, the classes, magic items, spells, and so on of D&D. Um, clearly, Greyhawk and Blackmore, when they came out in 1975, kind of provided a blueprint for this if any amateurs in the community wanted to try to chip in. And, uh, you know, the first notable book like this was, was the Manual of Arania, which came out in 1976. It was put out by a bunch of Los Angeles fans who were attached to the, the Arrow Hobbies crowd. And um, Hargrave actually moved, although he lived in the Bay Area, in a lot of the same circles as those people did. Um, he was part of a wargaming, wargaming group that was called the uh, International Gamers Association, the IGA. And uh, through that group, he was surely aware of these, these sorts of activities. But he was also deeply plugged in with the Bay Area, this extremely vibrant, um, creative culture. This was what spawned Steve Perrin. This is what spawned Greg Stafford. This is what spawned Isaac Bonovitz. I mean, we could really just go down the list of the conventions, the books, and so on that were part of that just, just D&D renaissance there in uh, 1976. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Arduin Grimoire, I think, is something we really need to understand kind of as a product of those two traditions. First, of this kind of wargaming influence where people were starting to kick the tires on role-playing games in that context. And then kind of this, this fringy, crazy uh, East Bay and San Francisco culture. Well, I, I thought I read in Playing at the World, these guys were all hooking up at science fiction conventions, right? They were science fiction fans first. A lot of them were. Um you know, if you think about groups like the Society for Creative Anachronism, which was a product of the East Bay, and folks like Steve Perrin, of course, were, were deeply in this, as as was uh, Isaac Bonovitz, that really came directly out of science fiction fandom. Um, but there was also this, this game's dimension to it. Uh, these were people who were very well familiar with the wargaming clubs, the same sorts of clubs that Gygax and Arneson had been in, um, and were familiar with the, the system designs that came out of that. So you, you get both of those. That, that's true pretty much of all the history of D&D, right? It's this incredible collision of this crunchy wargaming culture of simulating conflict and then these fanatics who love this genre literature so much that they wanted to be part of the story and they wanted to be characters in these stories themselves. Mm-hmm. But in, he got in trouble with DSR, right? Oh, he did, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, not as much trouble as some some did. And this this was a weird era, right, when Arduin came out. So think of Arduin like it came out, you know, very early in 1977, uh, February of 77. This was a time when uh, TSR was already in the habit of sending cease and desist letters. Um, they'd sent them to um, pe- people like Metagaming, uh, certainly to, to the producers of Tunnels and Trolls at the time, to FBI, um, even to just in, individual fans who wanted to make character sheets. If they had Dungeons and Dragons on the sheet, you would get a cease and desist. And huh. Ar- Arduin was targeted because it talked about D&D. What did they get? What did metagaming get it for? Melee Wizard? They got it because they were distributing FBI stuff, actually. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, a, were- a lot of those companies back in the day also basically ran their own game stores, right? 
They did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that really went hand in hand. I mean, if you look at Hargrave, he was somebody who first wanted to publish the Arduin Grimoire through Chaosium, and when that didn't work out, uh, <laughs> he ended up. Well, we can talk about that. <laughs> when that didn't work out, a new spell happened. Yes. <laughs> you know, he got together with some friends and, and self-published it. Um, but this ultimately led to him forming his uh, his multiversal trading company, right? His own game company that's selling these things, and he he sold them himself at at cons in the Bay Area. Yeah, that struck me as kind of weird because you know at least maybe I'm just spoiled by the OGL or whatnot. But it's like, if from what I understand, the very original Arduin, you know, was saying. You need Dungeons and Dragons in order to play. Use this. Oh, dude, it's and hysterical. I've got so it's it's almost a free advert <laughs> for TSR, right? I mean, you've got thanks for buying this, but you've got to go buy TSR's game before you can use it. That seems to be a good thing. The printing yeah. I've got is like the fourth edition of the first volume, and you can tell because it was typeset with one of those machine typesetters back in the day, or typewriters rather. And wherever it said Dungeons and Dragons is a blank spot where a completely different type says, says many another fantasy game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this uh, people very hastily circumvented these cease and desist orders. Um, he did also entirely redo the forward to, to Arduin Grimoire, which talked a lot in the very first printing about D&D. And um, yeah, I mean, I, they were very aggressively pursuing that as a, as a trademark. And a lot of people at times said that from a legal perspective, this was actually a specious complaint. Um, that it's not, you know, they, the, the, the use of the term Dungeons & Dragons in these contexts is actually unlikely to be a copyright violation or a trademark violation, provided you indicate who the owner of the trademark is. It's only really if you reproduce copyrighted text that you're going to get into a problem. But if you're some guy who's self-publishing this that, you know, is getting by on a very modest means and you're getting you know, cease and desist letters from, from a company, you're, you're going to stop. <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah, you may be in the right, but can you afford to fight it? Yeah. Well, like I was mentioning to Mike, we were talking about this the other evening. I remember back during the 1980s, at least, a lot of people, you know, had a very, you know, uninformed opinion of what was copyright violation and what did you have to do to maintain your copyright? And at the time, the overlying belief with the common person on the street was if you did not go after every instance of copyright violation that you became aware of, then you were considered to be automatically giving up your copyright. And, you know, that wasn't true, but that was what a lot of people genuinely thought. And so I wonder if at the time, you know, TSR not being a really huge company yet, you know, maybe they didn't know enough to realize that they didn't actually have to you know, get on every single instance where the term Dungeons and Dragons was used. Yeah, it's complicated. So, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, and I I certainly can't speak with uh, complete authority on what the legal situation was in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So, I'm sure, as you know, this was transformed right in the middle of this by the Copyright Act of 1976, which went into effect on July 1st of 1978. So, at at the time all this is happening, actually, copyright was changing uh, immediately. But 
people are confusing trademark dilution with, with copyright infringement. And right. trademark dilution actually does have this property um, where if you don't, if you're Xerox and you don't care that everybody, you know, says the term Xerox um, and, it's, and you don't defend it in some way, yeah, there, there are actually some legal problems you can encounter because of that. And part of this is just that, though, in, in the sense that they wanted to go after people who are just saying, we have Dungeons & Dragons character sheets, right? And it says at the top, Dungeons & Dragons. Um, you know, is that use threatening your trademark and your ability to market things that are associated with your trademark? So, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a great legal leg to stand on. And yeah. For some, it's clearer than others. Like, what, what was in the Arduin Grimoire, I mean, was absolutely not a copyright infringement. There's, there's no way of characterizing it that way. And I doubt it's even a trademark infringement, but I'm not a lawyer, again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the complete Arduin, which Liz and I looked at, um, by then, he had basically overcome that by making a standalone game system, though it's pretty obvious that, you know, that <laughs> it, it's meant to be, you know, a D&D type clone of some kind. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really fascinating to me, just as a, an historian, to compare, you know, the people who tried to do standalone things, the people who tried to do supplements. And there are plenty of things that really just kind of fell like in the middle, like the Warlock rules that came out in 1975. Um, you know, the subtitle of these when they were printed in the Spartan Simulation Gaming Journal number nine was how to play D&D without playing D&D, as if to suggest this was like a new and independent system. And in fact, it has still has tremendous reliance on the original box. So there's no <laughs> way that it's a complete game. And even Tuttles and Trolls, I, I might argue, in its first edition, and few people play it in that. When we talk about the fifth printing, when Liz Danforth had edited this into a coherent game, it's very different. But if you go back to the first print, Thing, it's it's com incomplete, unplayable as it stands. Mm -hmm. But some people had that audacity. Some people said, "This is a new system, damn it!" And like you're playing this, you're not playing D and D anymore. Um, Arduin, I think, falls much more like the Manual of Arania and that kind of supplement. We're making a Greyhawk. We just don't happen to be doing it through TSR. Couldn't it also be argued that much like the little brown books to begin with, there was a certain expectation of prior knowledge that they felt they didn't need to go into detail and in either the little brown books or perhaps Arduin. What people today would call an incomplete game was really more that, well, we assume you play war games or miniatures or even D&D, so there's a lot of stuff we don't have to describe because you already know it. Well, yeah. the, the first three little brown books in Arduin are clearly supplements with no cohesive game system of their own whatsoever. And I mean, let's let's be fair. D and D wasn't entirely complete at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, how playable was D and D without assuming that background in wargaming, assuming that you have some notion of um, just so many default things that they assume that they then needed to clarify or or provide alternatives to the combat system in D and D is completely unworkable as it's written in the original three copy books. of Outdoor Survival. Right. right. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a, a, a you know, we, we want to be careful about throwing stones around those glass houses when we say that oh, or yeah. it seem com particularly complete. But a lot of it does. I mean, this is an example of one thing they did change because TSR, uh, you know, was, was concerned about it. You know, they provided clarifications on the spell Prismatic Wall in the original Arduin Grimoire. Um, this was a ninth level spell that had been published in Greyhawk, but nobody really understood how it worked from the Greyhawk description. 
So there's like two pages of clarification um, just focused on how to use that spell. <laughs> right, right. What color stopped what magic? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, when you think about it that way, you have to read Arduin Grimoire as a book that is just directly commenting on what had been published by TSR already. I mean, it's, 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 it's just completely naked. Almost a commentaries. Yeah. Well, clar- clarifications, uh, recording house rules for things they think work better. I really appreciate you guys letting us do this show because I think we all started in 79, the three of us. Mm-hmm. Jo- John, when did you start? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, He's a young and... I, I didn't really play were, until the 90s. Were, were, you, were you born in 79? <laughs> no, I wasn't born in... I was born in the 70s. Not okay, okay. But, but, but I'm older than you guys, so I came to it as a freshman in college in 79, and um, my entrance wasn't the Holmes Basic set or the AD&D books. My entrance was a bunch of upperclassmen who had been playing for years and had all these books. They had Ardering Grimoire and All the World's Monsters and the Spellcaster's Bible, all these little digest-sized books. And uh, the AD&D hardbacks were just in the process of coming out. And that's when I learned to play. And it's like it's like Tony Soprano and the Sopranos were... You know, do you ever feel like you just came in on the end of something really great? Because... They were wild. The, the games were wild. If somebody showed up with a, a laser rifle, nobody thought twice about it. And this explosive creativity of the mid-70s that I just came in on the tail end of, th- these just, they almost make me sad. They're so cool. Yeah. I mean, I started obviously younger than you did, Jim. But again, I my first real experience was with that Delta Wargamer Society. And it was a whole bunch of 35, 40-year-old guys who had wargaming experience, had all the books you know, for D&D, and played very wild and wooly games. So, yeah, I, I can certainly see what you mean about that. And, and on it that doesn't, it doesn't get any wilder or whirlier than the Arduin Grimoire. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. True dad. <laughs> and we'll start then with number five on Jim. Okay, uh, I'm going to go straight to a spell. My single favorite Arduin spell of them all. What level spell? Oh, it's a six-level spell called Morgon's Spell of Red Death. This is the kind of thing you run into in Arduin Grimoire that you can't get in your vanilla TSR D&D. Morgon's Spell of Red Death. Any single target up to double the the mage's own hit die, save versus magic, or be messily, noisily, and very fatally turned inside out. Boom. You're done. <laughs> Transporter accident. Ah. Wow. Of course, Liz, when she was looking through the resources book, she groused to me. It's like every single spell in this book has somebody's name attached to it. Hey, that's going to be one of my top five. Oh, right. <laughs> it's very fancy to do Spoiler that. Spoiler alert, Mike. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> fine, fine. John, over to you. All right, so I just pick one of my top five now. Yeah. Amazing things in this. Yeah, it isn't so, like a ranking per se. It's just five. So I'm going to pick mana. There you go. Um, mana is something that had long legs in fantasy gaming, um, especially as you get into CRPGs. You would be hard-pressed to find a published game system that used the word mana for its spell points. In other words, mana is, is what they call the quantitative you know, magical power that you were imbued with, and casting a particular spell cost a particular amount of mana points. And this is something that was connected, actually, with authentic thaumaturgy and the work that Isaac Bonovitz has been doing and trying to figure out ways to make magic systems more like the magic systems that he studied in real life. 
and he worked a lot with Hargrave on this. But, you know, the first place I think we really see this as a published system is is in the Arduin Grimoire. Yeah, other than maybe the Golden Bell. I mean, that's... I'm sorry, is, is a game system. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, I was about to say, day. yeah, you know, yeah. point out the game system. <laughs> yes, I mean, so, because okay. so many future game systems use this, yes, it's kind of amazing that this one happened to, to happen to have this in it at this time. So, Okay, history professor. We got the game professor in here now. Yeah. <laughs> well, Silence! As, <laughs> as a member of the unwashed masses of both history and gaming, um, I'm just going to say that I personally don't care for the term mana, and that is solely because I've got, I got so burned out on the use of it in conjunction with the Magic the Gathering card game. Mm-hmm. And now I just have this psychological aversion to the term, and it's not Arduin's fault, because you know Arduin was clearly first, but now I just don't like the, I just don't like the term. <laughs> did, did, did you just confess on air that you played Magic the Gathering? <laughs> I've never played Magic the Gathering, and I've never owned a Magic card. But but at a con in the '90s, you couldn't get away from it. So, I did actually yeah. ask uh, Richard Garfield, who designed Magic, uh, about this once over dinner because uh, I was interested in what his sources were, and he did remember the Arduin Grimoire actually as being one of the things that that led him to use it. Though, of course, he knew uh, Larry Niven's use of mana directly and the most of the uses we see in the 70s are borrowing from the set of short stories that Larry Niven had written about this like The Magic Goes Away uh, which came out in 76 I guess um, so really right around the right time for this and um, you, you see Larry Niven's name encoded actually in one of the original magic cards something that's called Nevin Irel's Disc um, <laughs> which is Larry Niven backwards mm. I see so back to Appendix N I love it <laughs> well, sort of. Well, sort of. Okay, well, my fifth is going to be, I read the rules book of the Complete Arduin, and something that really stood out to me is that it read as much like a collection of essays on various role-playing suggestions than as much as a rule set, and I found that really cool. I mean, Hargrave would drift off into, you know, how do you deal with player characters with extra, you know, powerful weaponry, or how would it, how would you role play a dwarf and in Ardu? And of course, it's campaign specific, <clears throat> and we've often said, at least Jim and I, that we're not big on detailed campaign worlds. As a tear. But I, I think in this instance, it's really great because it gives suggestions that totally new GMs could find really useful that I think even in the D&D, AD&D books especially, didn't give very well. So I thought that was really awesome. Uh, he did something very similar when talking about the, the monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the monster section starts off you know, with monsters in theory and practice. And he talks about, you know, using about golems, about giants, about shapeshifters, about undead, you know, and gives, you know, paragraphs of suggestions and information on all these different various types of creatures that you can use. So that seems to be something that goes through all of the Arduin writing. Yeah. And before we make the system sound too wacky, everything he wrote is worth reading. It's very thoughtful. Even if it's too crazy for your game, it's thoughtful. He yeah. Didn't, he didn't just 
wing off a bunch of this stuff. Well, especially like a section on time he covered where it was explaining you know, how many expeditions should a character, a given character class go through before leveling up and how much of game time should that be when it comes to the age. I've never seen that in a fantasy RPG where they give you, you know, concrete numbers and you don't have to follow it. One of the things he also keeps saying in there is, you know, use what you want, throw it out if you don't, you know. A la like, carte. Yeah, but again, that would be very useful to somebody fresh into the hobby and, okay, I want to run a game, but, you know, am I giving too much experience, not enough? What's, what's going on with this? So, yeah, that's my five. Liz? Okay, well, since you already mentioned about my <laughs> gripe about every, all the spells having someone's name on them, I'll go ahead and make that my number five. Take it away. Yes. Um, yeah, just, again, just a personal gripe, but giving almost every single spell somebody's name started getting on my nerves about five pages into the spell list. <laughs> I really wish he had not done that. Um, it's interesting and neat when it's a rare occurrence, you know, implying that there are only a small handful of spells and spell casters which warrant, you know, naming due to the power or innovation of the spell. But when every single spell has a caster's name attached to it, it just starts getting kind of monotonous, at least to me. Um, and I do understand that, you know, these are probably the names of the players that were in Hargrave's games, and, you know, he wanted to give them credit for the spells that they created during gameplay. So, yeah, he did well, that on that a lot, level, I understand, but just as a personal preference, is like, you know, please, does every single spell have to have somebody's name attached to it? <laughs> well, he did that a lot, right, John? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, this is Arduin, bloody Arduin. So one <laughs> one thing to remember about it is that it, 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 he was a killer, and PCs had lives that were pretty cheap. <laughs> but <laughs> he did remember them all. He tabulated them all. He knew what they did, and yes, that was a big big part of how he saw the story of the world. He really wanted the story of the world to be about both its successes and its failures. All right, Jim, four. Um, my number four generally is. This is table madness in these books. There's a table somewhere in these rules. I mean, I can remember when we were played this way when we were young. Well, how tall is my character? How much does he weigh? You know, here's an article with that. Oh, boy, let's all find out and roll. But there are just, I mean, when I say everything, there's a table where if you're playing a female character, you can roll her measurements up. There's a table for that. Which yeah, is, it's very tabelicious. <laughs> all the charts and tables you can eat. I mean, you know. <laughs> So if, if you know, uh, like in the player's handbook for uh, AD&D, if it upset you that uh, women had stats that were skewed down from the men, <laughs> there's a, I mean, it was the 70s. The, there was a table in here for, you know, what you're, are you, oh, 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 let's see, I'm 34, 24, 36, hey. Yeah, I, it was weird when I was reading it because, at least in the complete arguing, he went out of his way when referring to the GM or the player to alternate between male and female pronouns. Well, apparently his, but, one of his big characters was a uh, female, the castrator. Yeah, the castrator. Yeah. Yeah. Goes around topless, very modesty blades there. But, um, yeah, I mean, and rolling up the, 
your your characters at well i'll i'll touch on that later so but but before that sounds entirely sexist i don't think it was necessarily so because i i know and i started attending science fiction conventions in the mid 70s when i was about 15 and i mean the cosplay that's going on now can't hold a candle to that because there were women and men who would show up at the costume contest half dressed all the time in the 70s because nobody cared mm-hmm. oh yeah body paint <sighs> okay john you get to follow up the body paint I don't know if it'll be anything nearly as enticing. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I guess I'll come back to uh, what you were saying, Mike, actually about about experience, um, because the experience system of Arduin, I think, is really innovative and strange um, in that it doesn't so much award experience for things like getting gold, right? I mean, that's Mm. where the bulk of your experience comes from as you read OD&D. And to be clear, OD&D is not super explicit about where experience comes from and where it doesn't or how much you get for killing an orc. And this was you know, subject to so many contradictory clarifications near the years. But I mean, I think Hargrave lighted on something where if you look at the, um, the chart he gives for, for awarding points, the highest number of points you're given is for death, for dying, and then being successfully revived. I mean, he he looks at a lot of these things in terms of um, not just success, but adversity being something that actually advances you. Ah, um, doing you know, being cursed is something you get two hundred and fifty experience points for. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember a rule that he had in there where, like, if you made a save and and passed it at one point, whenever you save against that particular thing again, you got a bonus or something like that. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, of the experience, and it um, th- this is this is actually really kind of forward thinking. Um, I mean, I don't think a lot of people were thinking this way. Now, mm-hmm. again, that you got to take that with that grain of salt that he was a killer, and <laughs> like you know that this book is full of arbitrary ways to die um, that are just as graphic as uh, Jim's spell that he like with the dishes, <laughs> right? Um, you know what happens in some of these critical hit outcomes is just you know really gross. Yeah, um, very Warhammer fantasy there. <laughs> you know, but I think he saw this as something where he only wanted to dole out the rewards when there was the risk. And th- this is how, you know, I, I've even seen a quote from Steve Perrin about this, that, you know, he had that view which Perrin considered to be heretical, that yet you know, had to couple that, you know, unless people are dying, you're not going to be getting the serious treasure. High risk, high reward. I mean, the yeah. equation is the same no matter where you set the level meters. Yeah, and mentioning the critical hits table, I noticed how many results could be like, you know, head pulped, irreversible death, or (laughs) dismembered, irreversible death. And I took from that is when it says irreversible death, you're not raising these people. Yeah, well, and and it's a world of traps and mists and, right, I mean, I don't want to possibly steal from anybody else's lists coming up here, but <laughs> like, you know, the traps and mists alone were again, famous in the Bay area. Uh, a lot of people didn't play with this style and they were, they were kind of wary of going into the Arduin universe. You know, in 1976, you see people reporting on this because of just how arbitrary death was. But then again, it came with these, with these great rewards. Yeah. All righty. Well, my four is going to be a criticism and I, I, I don't know if how fair I am being a criticism because this, let's face it, this is a campaign world supplement. He's talking as much about Arduin the campaign world as any you know rules expansion. But he loves playing with uh, made-up names for races, for 
forests or mountains or just anything descriptive. He he doesn't take the you know misty woods kind of kind of um, direction I prefer with my fantasy RPG. It's the skull naked green or something you know and <laughs> so, yeah just these weird names and it's like i hate that but again like liz and her mana issue it's, <laughs> yeah. it, i admit it's totally arbitrary but it stood out to me i don't i don't know if it's so arbitrary i mean and i i think a lot of people justly level the same accusation at tecamel Right at Empire of the Petal Throne. Yeah, I mean, there I, are these fifteen-syllable names of books and <laughs> deities, and they're you know not even easy syllables to string together necessarily if you're not a professional linguist. And yeah. does does that help you get immersed, or is that actually something that makes you, you know, harder for you to feel like you're a part of the world? Yeah, when I was reading it and putting down my list, I told Liz, I blame Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And everybody wanted to be like Tolkien, so. You know, in his high elvish and da la la la. Yeah, but you're right. I never could get into Petal Throne. I know there's some people that just love it, love it, love it, and that's great, but it just never really appealed to me. But was it because of the names? Could be. <laughs> I mean, there was no fantasy medieval baseline you could work from, really. It was more Eastern, I'm given to understand. I obviously, as I say, I haven't read the rules, I've just heard it referred to on various forums or other locations. And that was the impression I got. Yeah, it's a mix of Eastern and then South American, really, um, setting elements that he's, he's mixed together. I mean, uh, it's, it's, this is one of these things where having access to the draft material is so useful because, you know, in the 1974 draft of Petal Throne, and I, I don't remember the exact quote, you know, Barker admits, I don't know if like anybody other than me could really run this game. Because you need to know this world and know all these elements of it. And it's just hard for me to imagine someone other than me doing it. And then, then if you read the TSR version that came out a year later, he expresses more optimism <laughs> that, in fact, it would be possible for someone who purchases this product to actually use it. Um, so the original statement probably wouldn't have, have been appropriate. But um, Please don't wonder, buy my game. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder about the process that turned that one version into the next. So there you go. Over to you, Liz. Okay. Um, well, for my number four, I'm going to talk about the alchemical skills that are available to an alchemist character in the game. Or traders. Or traders. Um, some of the things that an alchemist can cook up are really quite innovative. And again, we get into the various mists because <laughs> they love spheres of mist with the alchemical skills, you know, slippery mist, itching mist. And then as you get higher up, you know, some of the mists become a little more lethal. Um, These were West Coast guys living in smog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, as a first-level alchemist, or, you know, a first order of power, as it's, you know, phrased in the Arduin rule books, um, one of the things you can do is make acid grenades. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the first thing I thought of was, I could play Strax. <laughs> I'm going to go play with my grenades. Get my acid grenades and just go to town. Hell, there's probably laser monkeys in these rules somewhere too. There probably are. I mean, I like. they've got they've got a race of 
you know, what were aliens from another star system. Sure, 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 sure. Don't steal from my list. All right, all right. But, you know, you could be Strax. You could. <laughs> You've got your acid grenades and everything. So I, I think that some of the things that an alchemist is capable of creating, even at fairly, you know, low levels of power, you know, can make them a much more useful member of an exploratory party than that same character would be in other game systems. Um, alchemists, you know, I got, I don't have, I've never actually played an alchemist myself in second edition, but when we did have players at our table try to be one, you know, they were kind of hit or miss as far as, you know, exactly how useful a character class that was in a dungeon crawl setting. I think you could do a lot more with an alchemist using the rules and the things you're capable of making in the Arduin system than you would be able in, say, second edition e- AD&D. Taco. Taco, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. Third? Oh, we're all the way to three. Um, I'll go ahead and jump in and say it since Liz almost got to it. Um, there are lots of... I mean, in uh, OD&D, it's inferred that you can run monster characters, right? But without any specific rules to do so. It was in Holmes. So, Arduin cuts you completely loose. There are rules in here to run any kind of monster race you want. And, and, and everything is cranked up to 11. I mean, so it's not just you could play an ogre or you could play a giant. The list of giants go up to something called a star giant. But my favorite is an entire race called the Freint, who are just big praying mantis grasshopper guys. That have no place in a medieval fantasy setting whatsoever. In fact, uh, it's almost uh, Tekel, I can't pronounce. Tecumel? Yeah. It's, Tecumel. It's almost, Tecumel. Okay. It's almost Tecumel-esque in that they have a history of they were a starfaring race that ended up on this planet. But I have these vague memories of being a very young player, and somebody made miniatures for those guys. And at one point, I had one. There's just a big, giant hopping grasshopper guy in the middle of the dungeon party with a spear and i just thought that was awesome when i was a kid and i still think it's awesome today we just caught praying manises and put them on the table (laughs) (laughs) now you must fight (laughs) i mean you know but of all the bizarre things to stick into your game it's that's really gonzo i mean uh that's a that's a race you would expect to run into in uh, anomalous subsurface uh environment for example, that dungeon. If you ran across one of those guys down there, you just shrug it off and go, okay. But in 1979, that was crazy cool. You know, my character's half orc, half goblin, half knoll. Oh, yeah, well, I got a freint. Ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I, I've got some comments about half races, and but I'll save that for See, mine. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to steal yours then. Okay. All right, John, your third. All right, and I hope I'm not stealing from Odie on this one, but it's got to be said, Errol Otis. Yep. Yep. Very Errol true. Otis. Errol Otis. And, <laughs> you know, he even says at the beginning of the forward, uh, 10 years from now, I'll be proud to say I knew him when. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he would be very proud to say that he knew him when. And, yeah. you know, again, yeah, I, I'm working, or at least for, for this, I read from the, the original editions of these, so with the original Otis illustrations, and they're just, they're so remarkable, and they show all that imagination and talent and promise, and you got to think about it, like, this is really what, you know, got him involved with, with, with all this and with TSR. Um, and he was like what? He was a teenager then, too, right? 
Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how old he was then. Uh, we could look up his birthday on Wiki, I'm sure. But um, he, he was described as a very talented young man by Hargraves, so I get the sense that he was pretty green at this point. But yeah, priceless. Loves my Aerolotus art. Oh, well chosen, sir. Mm. We need to get him to sign that little mini expert set, box set we got, Liz. Well, one of these years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm jealous of your editions, John, because I've got them still printed in little brown books, but it's the set that came in the box set. So m- there's a couple of Errol Otis pieces left, but not like the first editions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the first edition, the cover is, is Errol Otis. Um, so. Coolness, coolness. So when you're old and it's time to clean out your garage, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I see what John needs to do. I'll is... be 10 years dead then with my head pulled yes, irrevocably. Yes, you will. But... <laughs> I was going to say that. I, I didn't want to go there. <laughs> But uh, yeah, John. What John should do is like have a big mausoleum and then dig tunnels and stuff underneath, fill it with traps and everything, and then bury and in his sarcophagus or whatever have all his really rare gaming stuff. And then if you want it, you have to go down there and you know and try to beat the traps. Yeah, get it the old fashioned. Ah, really, <laughs> the, the simple way is just to be killed with me. <laughs> then you can play these things with me in the afterlife, the way it's supposed to be. There you go. The Runes of Peterson. Damn, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write this. <laughs> okay, well, my number three is playing sort of off uh, what Jim was starting with, with the various races. Um, you have Amazons, who are actually a slightly different race than humans. And that was interesting. And the males of their species, Manazons. Ooh. Great word. <laughs> but the one that stood out to me most, well... He also has hobbits. Hobbits! See, I, I know exactly where you're going with this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cobbits. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't decide if it was Cobbits or Cobbits. You think it's Cobbits? Yeah. I, whatever. Cobbits, Cobbits, whatever. Yeah, somehow. Cobbits sounds cuter. <laughs> Cobalds and Hobbits fought together against an ancient evil and then apparently interbreeded. Breeded. <laughs> interbred. <laughs> Into what amounts to kind of like the rattlings of warrior fantasy. <laughs> they're, they're they're kind of sort of halflingy, but they're kind of trashy half hobbits and treacherous. So they're basically what you've always accused gnomes of being, as opposed to dwarves. Except they've got nasty personalities. You know, this is <laughs> the ones who drink and. Like hobbits, they like to eat and drink a lot, but they eat like crappy turnovers or pastries and drink and throw up and just kind of, you know, the hobbit you never want to have spend time over for dinner. God, if half orcs upset Gary Gygax, I mean, this list must have given him a heart attack. Cause there's a lot more than monster slaying going on and down in that dungeon. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I just picture Gary with the Sheldon eye twitch, you know, when he hears about this. Well, and, and notice well how drenched in Tolkien IPR this, these books are. You got your hobbits, you've got your Urukais, you've got your Balrogs, um, all the things that would be expunged from D&D. And re- remember, of course, that stuff didn't, that, that C&D did not come in until the end of 77 to TSR. So when Arduin first came out, that hadn't even become an issue yet. Was it still hobbits in the Emperor's Choice version, Jim? Uh, I'd have to scan it and tell you, but I'm sure okay. it's not <laughs> by that point. Well, Complete Arduin was, I think, 1980 or 81, and they're still in there. 
Mm. So, don't know. That'd be interesting to find out. I can Mm. do a quick... I have the PDF. Hang on, I'll tell you. And we'll ask Liz to cover her number three. There are hobbits in the Emperor's Choice version. Maybe that's why it's not available online anymore. (laughs) (laughs) They may have figured they were so under the radar as far as print runs and stuff. It's like, well... Until we become important enough to actually get a letter from the Tolkien estate, we're just going to keep running with this. <laughs> That'll work with the Tolkien estate. That will not work with Edgar Rice Burroughs' estate. They're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, my number three, um, when I was reading through the magical items um, section, one of the things that they talk about in the creation of your own magic was something called magical keying. And basically, you are, in the creation of the item, you are creating a set of circumstances in which these magical items will only work. You know, such as if you're a dwarf, it will do these things. Otherwise, it's just an axe or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they spe- it specifically says that Dwarven smith mages are especially skilled at doing this far better than any human or anyone else doing so. Which again is very Tolkien slash Norse. Yeah, and um, I really liked that play on it because a lot of times in these fantasy games, you know, you don't really see, you know, a dwarf also having magical abilities even though a lot of the special, you know, items that magical items tend to be made out of, you know, the special gemstones, the special metal working, etc., you know, you need to have a level of craftsmanship that in your standard fantasy texts, usually only dwarves are capable of doing that. And yet you never really hear in, you know, sets of game rules about dwarves having any special magical abilities as a race. So I really liked that play on it, and it also reminded me of some of the characters that Mike has had as NPCs in some of his games that I've played in. Special Turin Steelweaver? Yeah, yeah, special dwarven smith mages. <laughs> nice one! Yeah, I one of the, MP, the NPC in particular she's talking about is a dwarf who was a magic user, but rather than the standard dwarf forger, he was just, he only made jewelry. That was his thing, is making jewelry. Because everybody's like, oh, dwarf, make axe, weapons, armor. Yeah. No, no, not him. He makes brooches, you know, <laughs> or cloak clasps. So <laughs> a a guy that could make the Arkenstone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Mm. Mm. All right. Cool. Now, Jim, number two. Oh, is it back around to me? Okay. Yeah. Uh, which one do I want to say? Hey, save? you wanted us to shorten episodes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm going to dovetail along with Liz and save my big one for number one. But uh, there's a particular magic item that to me just symbolizes the Gonzo Zeitgeist of this era. Uh, buried in, let's see, it's volume two, is something called the Ring of Maybe. It, co- <laughs> it would cost yeah. you a hundred thousand uh, gold sovereigns. And uh, it's basically a ring that lets you program a specific set of circumstances into this magic ring that if those circumstances ever happen, they don't. 
which is just ingenious. That's an ingenious magic item. I've never run across anything like that before in my life. Like I, I just, I, I know it's going to be an orc crossbow through the chest. Okay, I program a ring for that, and then my magic user is up casting spells, and here comes a crossbow, critical hit right to me, and it still misses. It's genius. Mm. Cool. Yeah, that that would be. It's very course, symbolic of that to... tension between a, a hard killer DM and hard bitten experienced players. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Very you much. Come up with exactly the concept. Yeah, at the time of creation, get a lot of XP for that if it actually happens. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, that's that's a good one. Um, John, you're number two. Okay, I, I think really I'm wish I had a better way of saying that. I am number two. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, percent liar. Ah, oh, I, yeah, I noticed liar. that came in. So, of course, Percent Liar, for people that are not uh, OD&D fanatics, this was a, a misprint in OD&D that, um, you know, when, when they have the percentage that a monster is supposed to be in its lair, instead that is listed as Percent Liar. <laughs> and a lot of people interpreted this to mean percentage chance that, like, a creature would actually lie to you if you met it. And Arduin just takes that to its extreme. In its original edition, and like every monster is assigned percent of, of that it might be a liar, and maybe even some information about what it might lie about. <laughs> um, you know why this one is particularly disposed to be a liar, and um, I don't know. Uh, trolls did that too, right? Yeah. Oh well, because again, this was a, a widespread misconception across the entire industry at the time. Nobody knew uh, what that was supposed to mean in the the ODD charts, and just a, another example of how ODD's underspecification and sloppiness just had these amazing ramifications for how these original products uh, that followed on it are structured. <laughs> so your percent liar is zero because you're telling us the truth. <laughs> in, in this instance, at least you think I, I, I encounter our paladin for some right. liar zero. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, my two, I will say, and I think both John and Jim have intimated this throughout most of the episode. This is certainly a product of its time. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, John, but random determination of things for your character were really big. And it's reflected in Arduin by tables and tables, height, weight, hair color, skin color, body frame, um, scars, birthmarks. And some of it is just kind of makes you wince because it's not entirely politically correct. Kind of like when you go to Dragon Number 2 and read Len Lakafka's yeah. distaff article on how to get women into D&D. <laughs> And I don't <laughs> doubt for a minute Len was being completely sincere and trying to open the hobby up to women. But you read that now and it just, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody will <laughs> write that today. You'll get your ass crucified on the cover of People magazine. <laughs> I mean, ah. No, I and mean, pe- people are going after him for that still. There was a there's a guy who's an academic who wrote a piece about misogyny in the female body in D and D that I mean after reading it I assume we're supposed to go find Len Lakafka and burn his house down I mean <laughs> people are still finding this material and treating it like it's contemporary material so I was like, yeah. no you gotta know the you you can't 
read stuff like that without thinking of the context it was created in. I'm sorry, I draw the line at arson. I mean, I'll, I'll defringe on <laughs> I'll defringe on Facebook, but I'm not going to burn your house down. <laughs> right. You're just saying that because you want to loot through his collection afterwards. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> You're wasting it. Exactly. But hang on, before you go, Mike, it, it, uh, this is another instance of uh, something from the mid-70s being very pre-essent of the customizable character in online games now, though, in a way, right? Yeah. Oh, and that was something else I didn't mention. You know, you have all these random tables with random roles to determine all sorts of things about your character, but he also puts in there, you can also just keep rolling on the table until you get something you want. Because he's going like, to die, die anyway. He's going to die anyway, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, that point, you know, why roll? Just yeah, say, okay, just I want that pick one. Pick something randomly, but yeah, just... yeah. No, this, this was very much a product of its time, and I mean, it's important to remember too, just because of the state OD and D was in. Like a, a good example of this are the special ability tables you see in Arduin. There just was not a lot to differentiate starting characters in OD and D. Yes, you roll your, you know, your abilities and and so on, but. Pretty much all first-level fighters were alike, and so everyone introduced these tables that had a um, yeah, just just little merits and flaws, right? That you could randomly roll up that get attached to your character, and maybe they're good, maybe they're bad. But the, the sheer arbitrariness of it, yeah, is, is is what makes it something that we need to look at in a museum rather than something we probably would play with today. <laughs> I mean, yeah. In that sense, I'm very sympathetic to, to what you say about that, Mike. I mean, this is. Um, it's a system that is so um, punishing. Uh, if, if if a mist can equally well, you know, be asset and disintegrate you, you know, change your gender, sub, you know, subtract one d six from all of your abilities, and these are just like mists you walk into <laughs> as you're like walking through the dungeon. Um, yeah, it's 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 very arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> Makes a Tim Cast game seem fair by comparison. <laughs> well, and. One of the things that stood out to me is you could actually roll where your character has no eyes and is blind. However, you basically have the Matt Murdock power at a 50-foot range. So it doesn't really affect you necessarily, but you know it's kind of, okay, that's a handicap and a special Benny all at once. Oh, it means you don't need a torch in a dungeon. That's what that means. And yeah, right. Don't have to worry about fan uh, illusions. I think when, when Hargrave was writing about this in 79, he said that over the course of the campaign, so the campaign probably was four or five years old by that point, he killed 700 PCs. Oh, my God. Holy I don't crap. know what's scarier, that he killed that many PCs or he keeps the number. Oh, he keeps the number. <laughs> oh, he records that stuff. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Good thing he didn't like, put a notch on his DM screen or something for <laughs> it. Well, I do remember as, you know, like a... 12-year-old or so, um, one of, I think it was the very first Dragon Magazine I ever picked up, which I want to say was like numbers, issues 72 or 73. It was in the low to mid-70s and had as one of the articles a section where you could roll up random alien races for Traveler Mm -hmm. as one of the articles. And I spent hours just randomly rolling on those tables just to see what kind of creatures I would come up with. I did not own Traveler. <laughs> right. I was not going to be using 
these creatures because I did not own Traveler, but I still had the best time just rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling just to see what would happen. You know? <laughs> so I could very easily see a 12 or 13 year old version of myself picking up this game and just, just rolling up character yeah, after and character. Just having pages and pages of NPCs that I meticulously roll on every single one of these tables just to find out what they're going to randomly come out looking like and being like. Yeah, well, if you want to use these tables to come up with NPCs as a DM, they're great. Part of it was just being that young and the hobby being that new at the same time because I I mean, we couldn't get enough crunch at that age. I mean, when the Dungeon Master's Guide first came out, we were like, oh, you know, the Monty Python God appeared music Mm -hmm. happened. You know, (laughs) look at all the tables. (laughs) (laughs) And don't forget Judges Guild. Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. mm Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it was a sign of the time that, that the tables were. I mean, I think, Liz, probably your experience with tra- Traveler, even though you never played Traveler, <laughs> actually you did, because that's what most people did when they played Traveler. Oh, right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. You rolled up characters and then didn't do anything. <laughs> very I, common I rolled it. up this character, and then right before I was done, he died, so I had yes, to start exactly. over. <laughs> I'm going to keep rolling until I get a ship. Oh, look, I'm 54 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a pension, so uh, I'm just going to retire. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that is how you play Traveler. <laughs> Yeah, and there was a whole set of tables and stuff in there where you could spend all your time trading from one planet to another. You'd roll up your ship, your random cargo, you'd go to a random planet, sell the cargo randomly, buy another random set of cargo from there, go to another random planet, rinse, repeat. (laughs) Um, So yeah, tables. Gotta love them. So Liz? Okay, are we on number two? Yeah, we, t- <laughs> okay. we tangent. I lost track. Okay, um, my number two. Um, one of the things which really stood out to me, um, I mean, we're covering this on our show, and we are basic expert as opposed to, you know, AD&D. Classic. But yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of the a lot of the things, especially the sheer number of charts and tables, etc., you know, can easily put you in mind of, say, first or second edition A D and D, as opposed to, you know, even O D and D or the basic expert sets. However, one thing that I do think, you know, just really captures the spirit of playing classic is where Hargrave states you know, when he's talking about using his rules, you know, you can take any of them and put them in whatever game system you're using. Or if you're playing my game system, you can take whatever rule you want from the game system you came from and port it into my game system. And he, after all of that, you know, basically he sums it up by saying the numbers are not important. Only the idea is. And I think that really is, you know, the the main concept of, you know, the classic games of the time period. Yeah, Hargrave was not a rules lawyer. You know, it's like, do yeah. whatever works for you and your players, and I don't care what game it comes from, you know, throw <laughs> it in there. If you don't like this, take it out. You know, the idea was way more important to him than, you know, how the numbers crunched. Which is really an anti-Gygaxian philosophy. At least yeah. when it came for a- AD&D, yeah. Um, I was talking earlier this week to DM Vince, and he was saying that uh, Roll for Initiative was considering doing Arduin 2. I always slide on that word. Arduin <laughs> as well. 
And my first reaction was, you know, what does Arduin have to do with AD&D since Roll for Initiative is a 1E AD&D podcast? But then as I read through this, I realized, you know, you could plausibly say this is a alternate AD&D because it really creates lots of detail and crunch to what was a, originally a very freeform game. Well, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Hargrave, of course, goes in there, like Liz just said, you know, tells anything, don't like it, throw it out. But it does – It. I would say that if you played this by the book, it would probably make your game even crunchier than canon AD&D. Oh, I mean, just look at the amazing weapons system, right? oh. where on a per armor class basis, there are like different dice for each weapon roll. I mean, it's, you know, it's incredible how um, detailed and, and, you know, simulation driven, we'd say, um, some, some of those rule sets are. But Your he was at Battle factor, yeah. Yeah. He got a lot of pushback from the community. I mean, Hargrave did. Um, you know, if you go through alarms and excursions uh, from the time, You'll see uh, people like Lee Gold, people like Glenn Blackow, very, very serious people whose opinions carried weight in the community uh, who, who weren't impressed with the Art and Grimoire for, for a lot of these reasons. And also just because of its appalling lack of organization. And you probably remember the, the original first printing of it actually had no page numbers and no index of any kind. And so wow. it was literally just... A, a set of notes, right? Xerox <laughs> um, so, I mean, copied notes. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, beyond that, um, you, you know, you, you did have to contend with that. Um, the players who, who came out and said, well, we tried this, or I, I, don't, I don't think this would be a good thing to use. And Hargrave responded to them in alarms um, pretty much consistently with, well, I mean, these are just ideas. And, you know, I like specific feedback. I'm looking for things to do for f- future volumes. And um, I'm not telling you that this needs to work for your game, but hopefully reading this, you'll get some good ideas. And, and I, I don't think that he thought it was any more um, prescriptive than that. That will leave us to the number one then. Jim, dun, your dun, number dun, one. Dun. My number one is the Multiversal Trading Company. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in hindsight of 40 years, again, pre-essent of online M-Morgs and role-playing games, because apparently in Arduin, there's a company called the Multiversal Trading Company that's everywhere. And it's just your one-stop dungeon adventuring shop where you can get everything from all the standard things to laser rifles and ice guns if you want them. And they've got them. And uh, even uh, there's a player class of merchant. Where I the could, trader, yeah. yeah, where you could you could actually be one of those guys, but just um, I mean that in in seventy seven eight that was just completely gonzo. Today you look back on it and go, wow, you know, World of War. Warcraft kind of works like that way. Or you know, you've got a Wal- WalMarts that carry everything. You know, I mean, in the seventies it was pretty much still broke up. You went to grocery stores for groceries. You went to a department store for you know furniture or whatever and but yeah everything under one roof well as as opposed to your naming problem with the conventions of maybe you know some of the esoteric lands and people i mean the multiversal trading company does exactly what it says on the tin and i love that <laughs> yeah there's no yeah. made up there well isn't Although, there something similar in second edition you know some kind of uber 
place that you can go in Waterdeep and, and just get whatever the heck you want. And I wonder, did they steal that idea at you know TSR or whatever from this you know trading company from the Arduin game set? I have to ask uh, Ed Greenwood, I guess. I mean, what I like about that idea is there's something – there's an abstracted level in there that's not a simulation of anything real. There's no rationale where you can explain the multiversal trading company in a fantasy medieval setting. It's just there because the players need it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I kind of – you know, that sort of makes my old school heart warm and fuzzy. <laughs> the one uh, historical note I'd add to this, I also think it's it's a super interesting subject actually because I'm interested in the ways that people tried to make all their campaigns connected – um, or, 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 or disconnected. Um, people in the Bay Area generally considered Hargrave to be an alternate universe DM. Like what was going on in Arduin was different from the Monday night game, which is where people like Steve Perrin would, would play. Um, but nonetheless, Hargrave was one of the branch managers of this thing that was called the Crocker Denizens Bank, which is, I think, the prototype, actually, of the multiversal trading company that was organized by some of the San Francisco fans, but it had like an L.A. branch and a San Francisco branch. And they tried to, again, figure out how to pool resources, let people put money into it, buy things from it, get even loans so you could do spell development and things like that, and to create this as kind of an overarching system. And I think that this ended up getting turned into the multiversal trading company as, as Arduin evolved. That's really interesting. It almost sounds like how in Knights at Dinner Table they have to file for character visas to transfer campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, I, I, there's even an account. I think it's in Alarum's number 10, uh, which would be in 1976, uh, where Hilda Hannafin, who is one of the real stars of kind of spreading the gospel of gaming on the West Coast, she visited Hargrave's dungeon. And she, she was nervous to visit it, but she always wrote these amazing battle reports. Hilda is like one of the most important people who just went around and went to cons and played with everyone and just writes these great descriptions of having played in their games. And, um, you know, she describes having to actually travel overworld like they had this whole – so her characters could get from their existing campaign into this alternate universe. There was actually some peril involved in that uh, <laughs> before she even then got to Arduin and went down into a dungeon and had some pretty madcap experiences with mists and things and traps <laughs> and uh, all the things we, we know and love from Arduin. Play Misty for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if uh, mists will be your number one then, John. Yeah, you know, I think for my number one, I'm going to talk about Satan's own pitchfork. <laughs> um, just in general, the um, the power level of Arduin. Arduin is a really, really high magic setting and high power mm. setting. It's a setting where he gives experience point totals for killing demigods, um, <laughs> where there are lots of spell levels that go above nine. Where, you know, again, there, there is a specific experience point value he assigns to getting Satan's own pitchfork, um, should, should you be able to acquire something like that. And this is something people in the community at the time, I think, reacted to very negatively. Um, <laughs> this is one of the main criticisms, actually, of the Arduin Grimoire was that it was way overpowered um, or aligned towards characters that, that no one should have characters high enough level to do the things that are being talked about in the Arduin Grimoire. Yeah, wouldn't the max level something like 50 or something? 105th. Which 105th? Is, how okay. did we get this far in the podcast without mentioning that? The experience point yes. levels go up to 100. Yes. 
<laughs> and this, you know, this is not uncommon, right? I mean, in the very early days, there were widely different ideas about what level should be. I'm aware of uh, Los Angeles campaigns attached to Caltech where there were characters level 1,000. <laughs> and what that means and what you think you're supposed to do in your level 1,000, uh, you know, that's, that would be a whole other podcast, I guess. But, Pretty much anything um, you damn well please, right? <laughs> Arduin definitely has that. Uh, kind of Monty Hallish dimension to it. You know, a mist you walk into can also give you plus one to six on all your attributes, and you know, really can level you up and reincarnate you into you know demons and dragons. Things are incredibly powerful, um, and that that seems to be something that probably in retrospect was a little over the top. So the mists of Arduin are kind of like a deck of many things, really. Yeah, very much so. Also, <laughs> weird things can happen. The mists of DM Fiat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if the deck of many things caused like constant diarrhea, which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just reminded me that reincarnation table is crazy. I mean, you could be any. You could end up anything from a monkey to a, a storm giant. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. So that's my number one. Okay, my number one. I don't. I on, I honestly can't say whether this is a good or bad thing. I guess it depends on you know your mileage may vary, but this game has enough acronyms in it to make the U.S. <laughs> Army happy. I mean, there's there's attack battle factors, defense battle factors, magic factors, love factors, just all over the place with various you know calculations you need to make for combat non-combat saving throws just wild the lie factor right on it just wow wow it, it, i felt like you know reading all that i felt like playing i was playing champions again because like wow lots of math <laughs> so that stood out to me as number one Liz? Math. <laughs> Math. Okay. Uh, my number one. One of the things that I really thought was rather unique as far as the setting and the things that you can do in Arduin is how both time and the nature of reality itself are dealt with magically in the game. Um Several of the spells and magical items which deal with these things I found very appealing. Um, you've got the Gems spell of the Far Terminus, where a mage can cast it on someone, and if they fail their save, they are randomly thrown backwards in time, you know, upwards to, you know, maybe hundreds of years. Or that cloak about where you. You yeah. never existed. Right. The cloak of never, where you can wrap yourself up in it, and as long as you're wrapped up, not only do you no longer exist, but you never existed. That's way and better then, than the ring of maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and But because you're wrapped up and you're outside of space and time, you can't tell how much time is passing in the real world. So when you unwrap yourself, it is a random amount of time later it could be a couple of seconds after you wrapped yourself up with it could be a long time probably percentile probably percentile because we <laughs> like that sort of thing um yeah there's a lot of things that just not only alter 
time moving forwards or backwards. You know, there were boots of time that are a cursed item. And once you have them on, you know, at first you're going to think they're like boots of speed or something like that. But then once you have them on and they will take you forward in time, you know, with every single step you take in those boots and you could find yourself hundreds, thousands of years into the future, you know, all kinds of things can happen to you as far as, you know, the nature of reality, you know, whether you're going forwards or backwards in time, you know, do you exist? Did you ever exist? It's really, really fascinating, but... I think you would have a DM would have to handle that kind of thing very, very carefully if they were to import some of these things into their own campaign, as cool sounding as they are. Because um, if you used it solely as a DM fiat, then it's perilously close to railroading the players into the direction you want them to move. On the other hand, if the players get too much access to that kind of power, then a game can just totally go off the rails you know faster than you can say onomatopoeia <laughs> see dave handled that by killing him oh yeah well <laughs> um so time time travel is tricky you better be a master gm before you try try time travel in an adventure yeah i love the concepts of a lot of those magic items but it could be very, very difficult to successfully place them in a campaign setting. You know, you would have to put a lot of forethought into them, you know, as super neat as I think they are. So that was one of the things that just really stood out to me reading over the Use Arduin games. With caution. Yeah. But I love those magic items. I think they're <laughs> great. I just I would be very wary of putting them in my campaign though, as awesome as I think they are. Well, it's, it's the only way to get Satan's own pitchfork or or get away with it later. <laughs> you need these things that are so powerful uh, to be in this epic world. Epic. That's probably a good word to encapsulate Arduin. Oh, but I mean, for real, if Dave Hargrave was still alive and was running a game, wouldn't you want to sit in and try it? Oh, oh, oh just oh. for the experience, yeah. As long as I can be like, you know, level 97 and... <laughs> <laughs> Not that it'll really help you. He'll kill you anyway. No, I'll just, the, first, the first mist I walk into will actually disintegrate. So. <laughs> Surprise. All right. Well, let's head on into Products of Your Imagination and give this sucker some dragons. In new Dungeons & Dragons, power is won by finding new ways to battle. <laughs> Inside me! And being completely dragon flapping awesome. Set comes with spellbook, ritual rites, playboard, sacrificial dagger, and dice, dice, dice! TSR Hobbies, Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. Products of your imagination. I'm oh, sorry. Products of your imagination. <laughs> oh, well, let's take that thing away from him. <laughs> I've, I've created a monster. You, you have. You really have. All right. Comments on the format. And since, we're in a way, we were kind of each looking at a different set, we'll start with, we'll do it chronologically and start with John, since you were looking at the original, original format, layout. I think you've already kind of hit on it. 
Oh, I mean, it's it, it doesn't get any worse than this. It's absolutely <laughs> unreadable, uh, unsearchable. Um, I mean, I, I scan it and blow it up to 200% to even try to read the books. Um, and yeah, it, the, the one great thing to say about it, again, is it does have wonderful artwork from Aerolotus. But organizationally, I mean, it's, it's more of a collection of notes stapled together. You know, another precedent for this would probably be something like the first fantasy campaign is very much like that. A bunch of notes from different times that have been Frankensteined into one book um, with one author, and uh, good luck! <laughs> God bless. So which was mo- more poorly organized? This or original D&D? Uh, this by far. Again, original D&D had page numbers. It had a page of context. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, not joking. It had reference sheets on the outside of it. Mm. The original edition of the Ardor and Grimoire it didn't even have the author's name on the cover, right? <laughs> like, it, if you found this on the street, it would just be such a baffling thing to try to, try to interpret. What the heck? Names have been omitted to protect the innocent. Or guilty. <laughs> okay, well, Liz and I looked at the complete Arduin. What do you think, Liz? Well, it has page numbers, so <laughs> we're, we're improving there. Uh, it's set up in a two-column format, uh, very easy to read. Um, some of the chapter headings, you get into that black letter style of calligraphy, which can be a bit daunting. Um, Especially but for- to OCR. But fortunately, they only do that with the the chapter or section headers. Um, so it's not going to be a real deal breaker with that. Um, the art? It's got some, it's got some good art. Um, on the whole, it's... It's set up pretty much as your standard game books would be set up in the 80s or 90s at this point, you know. So, I'd, I'd say, yeah, it, it's it's definitely better as far as looking up stuff. You know, you've got your spells, you know, first there in the, you've got all of your magic user spells in one section. Then you've got all of your mage spell or all of your clerical spells in one section and the same with you know the rune spinners and other types of stuff and then after all that you've got an index of every spell just alphabetically so if you want to look it up that way you can just go down the list find your spell there's the page number boom Mm -hmm. there's a lot of good cross indexing going on in this and you know it's I would say, you know, <laughs> it's far and away better than the first set of stapled, no name, no page number <laughs> pages. And Jim, you looked at the, what I'll say is arguably the latest version by Emperor's Choice. Actually, I didn't. I'm on uh, third or fourth edition, whatever came in the box set, although I do have the Emperor's Choice version. Oh. I thought that's what you guys were just talking about. I mean, I I can. I I. The version, oh, no, the version I have is, is is an upgrade from what John talked about, and I mean, even with my reading glasses, I was reflexively doing the outside pinch movement like a touchscreen going, get bigger, get bigger. <laughs> and some some upgraded, very Marvel com- Comics-esque art, somebody clearly in love with Dave Crockham and George Perez had done most of the art after uh, Arrow Lotus's art was taken out, which John was... The Arrow Lotus art removed simply... I always thought as a kid that was because he went to work for TSR and Dave Hargrave got mad at him. Do you have any data on that? You know, I don't, I don't actually know. It's a, it's a good question. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Have to ask Errol Otis. Yeah. <laughs> I just, he might even answer us. I just missed my chance at North Texas Con. <laughs> so so I'm, your version is probably in between 
uh, John's very first version and the complete Arduin reprint of 1980-81. It's pretty close we to what. At. It's pretty close to John's fancy first edition. Okay, I'm so <laughs> jealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't be again. It's much harder to <laughs> interpret this stuff uh, in its original form. So, uh, well, the one I'm looking at, uh, complete Arduin. Uh, inside front cover says that it was um, first printing January 1993. Ah, okay. Uh, so it's the copyright, yeah, copyright is 1992. Grimoire Games first printing January 1993. Okay, my bad. Yeah, so, Emperor's, yeah. Emperor's Choice is 2008. So yeah, they probably had had a hold of desktop publishing for the complete Arduin, which could have helped out a lot. Oh sure. So. <laughs> All right, Jim Dragons. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the high guy, and I, but I want to explain up front why I, you know, as something if you're running an OD&D campaign in 2015, should you go out and grab these books and start running Arduin? I don't think there's a human being left on the planet that would actually do that. But if you're creating adventures and really running a campaign and want to mine it for ideas, I mean, just to refresh up on these books. I reread them for the show, and I'm seeing all kinds of stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm stealing that. I'm using that. I mean, it's it, <laughs> we always say that about the campaign settings. This is like an ex- re- atomic explosion of creativity in these books. And for that reason alone, I'm going to go with Four Dragons. Okay. John? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of want to split between how I feel about this as an historical artifact and its importance to, <laughs> you know, again, <laughs> things like mana getting into the ecosystem and, um, you know, where kind of what it galvanized in the Bay Area. And I mean, in that regard, it's incredibly important that we understand it from a perspective of actually using it in your games. Yeah, I, <laughs> I would give it a significantly lower rating than that. So maybe I'd split four to two. <laughs> okay, so three. Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't let me pressure you. I just yeah. if it's between a four and a two, one, three. Well, I, I have a, I have a four there on one of it, and then a two on the other. So it's kind of a if you're gonna study this um, to work on stuff like I do, definitely it's a four. If you want to play with this, it's a two. Don't worry, John. Mike <laughs> is gonna hard ass the hell out of this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to go three, two. Because it's, like you said, it's definitely a, a part of the beginning of the role-playing industry. And its creativity it just explodes out of it. It is sort of a campaign setting, but I would compare it favorably to a lot of other campaign settings. In that I think most of what he gives is game rules that reflect the flavor. Whereas a lot of campaign settings, they give you like... 200 pages of the world's history from the first, you know, age to whatever the campaign is now. And it's like, it's all prose. It really has no game effect. That doesn't really happen here. Everything he gives when it, you know, like John, you've said in the past, the rules reflect the world rather than a particular setting. Some of his rules tend to be part of the setting but i think a lot of it is he feels if it's not if it's not going to be a game mechanic you you can get by with a couple of sentences mentioning it and then moving on so i'll give it a three liz ah i'm going to give it a 3.5 at a girl um i i think it's i i think it's you know but it's it's solidly between three and four dragons for me 
I agree with most everyone else that I would not want to run the game with these rules, but I love a lot of the magical items, a lot of the monsters. There's a lot of things that I would, you know, take in a heartbeat from the Arduin rules and import into my game. It's a treasure trove of options, certainly. Yeah, um, so I would not want to use the Arduin rules, and I'm not sure I would even want to use the setting whole cloth, but I could easily see myself taking bits and pieces and putting it into whatever I'm doing. 3.5 for me. Okay. I have to recant something I said because I said something incorrect. I forgot that Andy Action Markham on Facebook was posting that he is running an Arduin DCC campaign. So when I said no one would do that, (laughs) Andy Action would do that. (laughs) Who would be foolish enough to do that? I am that fool. That's right. (laughs) Well, Andy, salute. (laughs) Yes, tell us how it goes, man. Yeah, please. Please write in. Let us know. And I think that averages us out to a 3.3, which leads us to that time of the show again. The farewell down Bill Bixby's dusty highway, trying to thumb a ride. And how are we heading down the road? Liz. Well, I was going to try and thumb a ride, but unfortunately, I seem to have accidentally put on boots of time. And every step I take, I'm getting farther and farther away from the individuals I'd be getting rides from. (laughs) (laughs) Someone stops, and I start to step towards the the vehicle, and then I'm... Sark. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This isn't working out well. Jim? Uh, I'm going down the road, turning... Hobbits inside out with my red death spell. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my ring of maybe is programmed uh, that uh, if I stroke out between on deadlines between now and Gen Con, I don't. <laughs> and the funny thing is, it kind of improves the Cobbits. But anyway. And John? Well, I'm hitching a ride uh, claiming I'm trying to return to my lair, but I could just be lying about that. Whereas I'm walking down the road, or thought I was, but there was this mist that called up, and now I'm a 50th level courtesan? (laughs) (laughs) Now you're sure to get a ride. Wow! (laughs) Yeah. And on that note, we'll say farewell to everyone. See everyone at episode 111. John, thanks again for coming on to the show. John? I'm sorry, uh... Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we wore him out. (laughs) Yeah, his brain froze. So, farewell, everybody, and we'll see you next episode of Save or Die. (laughs) Goodbye. See ya. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely taking that away from you. At least get the batteries out of it. is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saberdye theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. Tables for tonight's episode were provided by the Multiversal Trading Company of San Diego, California. John Peterson is a Mr. and Mrs. Peterson production. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. I can't understand, though. I miss
It's a fun way to do it, John, because this way, since none of us know what each other's top fives are, we invariably overlap and curse each other. You stole mine! <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's why I usually choose about seven, just in case some of mine get taken by someone else. Oh, so now I need seven. I see. No, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Seven T, yes. Yes, right. right. <laughs> In um, fact, we're just going to leave and let you talk, John. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>